You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and welcome to Scottsdale. Those of you who are joining us online, we're so grateful that you're able to join us wherever you are. Some of you are uh, spread throughout uh, this country, this area, some from um, out of the country. You've been emailing me. Thank you for joining us on a regular basis as we meet together as a body of Christ here at Scottsdale. If you're a first time a guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor. We're so glad to have you here today. Now, last weekend was an incredible weekend weekend in the life of our church and all churches through the area where we had incredible crowds and we had a wonderful time of worship on Thursday evening as we came together and took the Lord's Supper together last Sunday. We had a great time. Of course, our spring fling was canceled last Saturday. And as Garrett said, we got 30,000 eggs filled with candy. Let me qualify something. He said, bring your baskets. He's talking about the children, okay? So... (laughs) I see a lot of you are looking for an opportunity to get eggs for next year, but but this is for kids and your grandkids and those things, so you can bring those things. But we had an incredible time together. We took a break from the study of Ecclesiastes last week as we looked into proof that the resurrection is no myth by looking at the Apostle Paul's writings. But today, we're back in the book of Ecclesiastes. We've got three messages left in this series. So take your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. I'm going to cover 18 verses this morning, which is a big feat, but we're going to get through it. And it is a very simple chapter. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is very straightforward. It is very simple. Now, up to this point, Solomon, who's the author inspired by the Holy Spirit, who's written Ecclesiastes for us, has been telling us that life lived under the sun, that is on a horizontal plane, is going to be meaningless. And he spent all of his time up to this point seeking meaning in a number of things. For example, he pursued materialism. And he found that there's nothing meaning under the sun in materialism. Then he ran after hedonism, looking for pleasure. I mean, he's got 700 wives, 300 concubines. And even in all of that, he found no purpose and meaning under the sun. Then he ran off into humanism, finding work and finding philosophy and the things of culture, and there was nothing meaning under the sun. And then finally, he approaches fatalism, that life is just hopeless. It's just the best it's going to be, so make the very best of what you can get out of it. But when we come to chapter 9, he turns the corner. Beginning in chapter 7, he's been slowly turning the corner, and now he's no longer looking at just life under the sun. He's taking us to life beyond the sun. He is shifting from this horizontal plane of living, and now he's moving to this vertical, approaching a relationship with God. And when we come to chapter 9, the whole emphasis of this chapter is how do we choose depth over comfort? How do we live our life in such a way that we're pursuing deep, meaningful life as opposed to just comfortable living? Now, let's be honest. Most all of us in this room would prefer comfort over depth. We would much rather pursue the comfortable things than the deep things. Matter of fact, your life is geared for comfort. Your very home speaks about comfort. We have comfortable chairs. We have comfortable sofas. We have comfortable beds. Many of you have my pillows and my dream sheets and all of those things that are designed for comfort. You have a refrigerator that keeps your food cold. You have a heating and air system that keeps you comfortable. You get into your luxury car and it's comfortable. Everything about our life is comfortable. And comfort is very easy because it's enjoyed immediately. But when you pursue deep, meaningful living, it doesn't come that easy. It requires work. You've got to dig deep. You've got to take risk in relationships. You've got to live in such a way that you're willing to count the cost of going deeper and not just being comfortable. So as we look at chapter 9, The whole theme 
is how do we go deeper? How do we live a deep, meaningful life in a world that is broken all around us? And the kinds of things that Solomon's going to tell us to go deep in are not the normal things we talk about. In the church, when we talk about going deeper, we want to say, oh, how's your Bible reading? How's your memorization? Or are you meditating on God's word? How's your prayer life? Or or, or, are are you studying God's word? Are you teaching God's word? Are you sharing the gospel? Are you out serving? We talk about all of these spiritual disciplines, which are important for deep living. But Solomon takes us in a place that's different. It is so practical. It is so easy, but it is so hard. So I'm going to give you six things that Solomon gives in this chapter. And in this chapter, he tells us how to go deep in our spiritual life with Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Guide us today. Help me as I unpack these verses and may your Holy Spirit convict us and change us for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. So here we go, Ecclesiastes chapter nine, beginning in verse one. This is where he starts. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. All this, everything that he's talked about from this point to now, he's considered it all, he's laid it to heart, and here's what he's come to the conclusion. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. He's saying that for the righteous person, for the person that seeks after God, in our term, the person who is following after Christ, Going deep means that there is an understanding that all things of my life are in the hand of God. And so here's the first point. If you want to pursue depth for your life, it begins by trusting God's sovereignty in your life. We need to trust the sovereignty of God. Now, a lot of people push back on this because they have the wrong definition of sovereignty. A lot of people view sovereignty as fatalistic approach to life, that God's the master puppeteer. He's pulling the strings of our life. And it really doesn't matter what I do or what I say or how hard I work. God is controlling everything and the ultimate end result has nothing to do with me. That's a fatalistic view of God's involvement in our life. God's sovereignty is the fact that he is in control. God's sovereignty simply says he is self-aware. There's nothing he doesn't know. God's sovereignty says that he has the authority to work out his good pleasure and his purposes, even in the midst of spiritually corrupt people, even in the midst of brokenness, even in sin. God's providence is working behind his sovereignty and he's working and he's directing things that will accomplish his good pleasure in a way that you and I can never fully understand. But here's what we need to know as believers. For the child of God, there is nothing that comes into your life that doesn't first filter through the hands of God. Nothing. Everything that I encounter in my life, even if it's a rebellious part of my life, even if it's something that I've chosen to do, God in his sovereignty is aware of it. He's seen the end from the beginning. He knows it all. So what does he do? He works everything for our good. He filters it through his own hands. But then he goes on to the second part of verse one, which is highly unpopular among many believers today. Here's what he says. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. Whether it's love or hate. What? Are you telling me that God can use love or hate or difficult things in my life? There has been a false doctrine that's been taught in the church for centuries now. And the false doctrine goes like this. If you give your life to Jesus, your life will be great. If you give your life to Jesus, your marriage will be fixed. If you give your life to Jesus, your kids will obey your every desire and every word. If you give your life to Jesus, your, your, your car will never break down. If you give your life to Jesus, you will never have spotty Wi-Fi anywhere you go. The problem with that view is the Bible. The Bible doesn't teach that. Nowhere in scripture do we see that. As a matter of fact, consider some of the most godly men and women who have done everything that God's asked them to do, but it didn't work out so neatly for them. Think of Job. 
who is the most righteous man. And God points him out to Satan and he gives Satan the opportunity to take certain things away. And yet in the midst of all of that obedience came suffering and pain for Job. What about Jeremiah? God calls him before he's even born to be the prophet of the nations. He ends up being beaten, stripped naked, and thrown into a cistern, thrown into a levine, thrown into a septic tank of human waste. That's what happens to him. What about John the Baptist? John was one of the greatest prophets who ever lived. Jesus said he was. And John's mantra for his life is, he must increase and I must decrease. Little did he know that decreasing would mean he'd lose his head. And so you see, the thing is this, when we listen to what all of this says, and we have to understand that sovereignty means that there are times where God's gonna use good things, hard things, sweet things, enjoyable things. There's sometimes God's sovereignty where there is love. Sometimes it's persecution. And God's sovereignty, sometimes it's a promotion. Sometimes it's a demotion. And God's sovereignty, sometimes it is health. Sometimes it is an illness. But in the midst of all of that, God is behind the scene using it in a way we can never understand. So if I'm gonna go deep in this life, rather than being angry with God and blaming God for everything, I step back and I trust him that he sees what I can never see. And there's a reason we lean into sovereignty. He goes on for two reasons. Number one is because of certainty of death. Notice what he says in verses two to three B. He says, it is the same for all since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that this is done under the sun that the same event happens to all. What's the same event? Death comes to all of us. Whether you're righteous or evil, whether you are well-disciplined or not, whether it doesn't matter your status of living, death is the great equalizer. And here's what we need to understand. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about you and me living a life of comfort and ease. The gospel of Jesus Christ says this, whenever I struggle with difficulties and even the possibility of death, Jesus is enough. He's enough for everything that I face and that I can trust him. Because death is going to come to every person in this room. Some of you are going to die at 90. Some of you are going to die at 60. Some of you might die at 30. We don't know. But in the midst of all of it, Jesus is enough for my life, even the reality that death is coming. But not only does he say that we need to trust in him because of certainty of death, we need to trust in him because evil and insanity are in a fallen world. Do you deny that? Look at the evilness around us in our culture today. I don't think we've ever in my lifetime, I've never seen such evil and open display of depravity. And we see it all around us. People walking into banks, people going into schools, people killing people on the street, people stealing cars, people shooting people for a pair of tennis shoes. It used to be that our culture had a consensual morality, which means this, even though not everybody was religious, people had a consensual morality. We understood that morality is good for society. And therefore, that kept restraints from us doing things that were absolutely evil. But now we live in a culture where there is no moral compass. And when there's no moral compass, there's no consensual morality and there is a complete disregard of life, even my own. And if I don't care about my life, then I can go into a school and kill as many people as I want because there's no moral compass. We're living in that kind of a world that's filled with evil, but not only that, insanity. Have you ever thought we would live in a time where we can't even speak with wisdom? Think of the insanity. We can't even define what a woman is in our culture anymore but we can say that abortion is for women's rights. How do we know? 
We allow men to pretend that they're women and play in women's sports and completely destroying the whole apparatus of women's sports. We can have a man dressed as a woman to advertise for a beer company such as Budweiser. A lot of people are upset with that. I'm really not because here's a man pretending to be a woman advertising for a beer company that serves water pretending to be beer. So, I mean, hey, it's all. So. I need a miller or something. I don't know. But, but here's the point. The point is this. Even in evil and insanity, listen carefully, we are to walk trusting God's sovereignty. Even though the world seems to be falling apart and losing its mind, here's how he says it. Also, the hearts of the children of men are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Even in the midst of all this, let me tell you, you want to go deeper in your spiritual life? Don't blame God. Trust him. Trust him. Don't be fearful of where the world's going. He's in charge. He's aware. He knows everything that is happening in every single moment. And every single thing, child of God, that comes to you first goes to the hand of God for his glory and for your good. So you want to go deeper? Trust his sovereignty. But then he moves on. Love verse four. He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. I love that lion. Love that lion. He's talking about as long as there's breath, there's hope. As long as you can think, there's hope. As long as your heart is beating, there is hope. And I love the line he says here about a living dog is better than a dead lion. The reason I love it is Solomon, like me, confirms it, that dogs are better than cats, always. Okay, even big cats. But let me just say this. In Solomon's day, nobody had a pet dog. Dogs were scoundrels. They were diseased mutts that lived on the streets. They were scavenged. They were fearful of people, and people feared them. Nobody would have a pet dog. We got dogs today that are more pampered than people are. We got dogs today that have better beds than a lot of other people do. We got dogs today that go into some of the greatest vacations they've ever been on because their owners can't leave them home. So this does not compute to us. But what he's saying is this, that even a scoundrel of a dog is better than a majestic lion that is dead. And so what he's saying is this. Here's the second truth. If we want to go deeper, we go by embracing godly hope godly hope. Listen, if you're alive, there's hope. If you're alive, there's opportunities. If you're alive in this world right now, you have opportunities to impact the lives of other people. We are to be living with this godly hope, verses five and six. He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. In other words, People who are living know about life here. People who are dead are not concerned about life here. Only the people who are alive now are concerned about life under the sun. It makes sense. But then he says this, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever have no more share in all that is done, here's the line, under the sun. Now, many believers will push back on this, say, no, 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 this isn't the end of love. No, no, no. If you're in Christ, we have eternal life. Our name's written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to be at the wedding feast of the Lamb one day. We're going to be at the banquet of the King. All of these things continue, and that is true. But he's making a distinction between eternity and now. He's saying this, when you die, you lose all your influence in this world from that point on. When you die, you will not be able to love people anymore on this earth. And when you die and you go to eternity, all of your encouragement, your opportunities are gone. He's saying this, he's pleading with us. While you are alive, take every opportunity to hope in the goodness of God 
While you are alive, take every opportunity to influence other people's lives for God. While you are alive, take every opportunity to encourage, to build up, to strengthen. While you are alive, this is your opportunity to do things that will impact other people's lives that may change their spiritual trajectory for eternity. I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter five, verses one through five. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Then he comes on, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here's the point, listen. Not only do we go deeper by trusting in the sovereignty of God, but we go deeper as we live in this life, understanding that as long as we're alive, as long as there's the gospel, as long as there's Christ, there's hope. There's hope for this marriage as long as we're alive. There's hope for my kids who have drifted and gone astray. There's hope for my grandkids. There's hope for my neighbors. There's hope for my coworkers. There's hope for a government that seems to be so corrupt without a moral compass. As long as we are alive, we are to walk in that kind of expectant hope. Why? Because the story is not over yet. And it's not over in you. It's not over in your family. It's not over in your relationships. So you go deeper by trusting the sovereignty of God every day. Everything's in his hands and it filters to you. You walk in this expectant hope. But then he gives us the third thing. You want to go deeper? How do you do it? By enjoying intimate fellowship with other believers. I think this is one that is so missing in our culture and in our churches. In verse seven, here's what he says. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Now, most of us, if we're going to be encouraging people to go spiritually deeper, we don't use this verse, do we? No, we don't use this verse. We use things like, oh, you got to read your Bible more. Oh, you got to study harder. You got to memorize more. You got to share the gospel more. You got to pray more. And those things are true. But so is intimate fellowship with one another. I love the way he puts this. He says, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. He's saying, eat good food. Drink nice, good drinks. Be with good friends who are humorous and who love to laugh and enjoy intimacy as friends and family together. Why? Because as a believer, when we walk in that kind of godly fellowship, you know what we're preparing for? We're preparing for heaven. Let me just say a few things. Eating a meal from McDonald's in your car alone is not God's idea of intimate fellowship. Hot pockets, though an ingenious idea, <laughs> is never what God has designed for you and me. It's sitting around a table with friends and family and enjoying one another and going deep with one another in an intimacy where there's no guilt and there's no shame. Do you know that when you go through the pages of scripture, you will see that meals are very important, not only for fellowship, but every major meal in the scripture that had fellowship involved led to a victory, Passover. The people of Israel gathered in deep, intimate fellowship, eating the Passover lamb right before the angel of death passed over. They had an intimate meal, then came victory. Remember that? Psalm 23, David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Before there was a win in the victorious battle, there was an intimate meal together. Intimacy came before victory. The Lord's Supper gathered in an upper room. And what do we see taking place there? Jesus in this intimate meal with his disciples before his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And when you go to Revelation, the wedding feast of the Lamb, where the people of God are gathered around the table with the Lord Jesus, enjoying this incredible banquet before the final victory for humanity. There is something deep and meaningful about that. And I think it missed in a lot of our, our busyness of our lives. We're so busy, we hardly have time to get together anymore. And yet deep intimacy is something that takes us deep because we learn from one another, we encourage one another, we sharpen one another. Now, for some people, a wonderful meal may be this nice, expensive filet mignon with all the fixings and a wonderful, expensive bottle of wine. For other people, a really good meal might be macaroni and cheese with some fried up spam thrown in the midst of it with a Diet Coke. But the purpose is not the meal. It's who's at your meal. And if we want to go deep, it means that we need to be in places where we're vulnerable and we can know each other and we can be known by each other. That's why small groups are so important as we can open up and go deeper in relationships. So he says, you want to go deeper? Trust my sovereignty. You want to go deeper? Embrace hope. You want to go deeper? Develop intimate relationships with other believers. And then in verse eight, he gives us the fourth one. He says, let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. Number four, by walking in purity and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's really what he means. Walking in purity and power of the Holy Spirit. When he says, let your garments always be white, White in the scriptures always refers to holiness and righteousness. Now, he doesn't say, he's not saying that you should only wear white because we all know white isn't very slimming, right? So he's not talking about always wearing white, but he's saying this, always having a heart of holiness and purity, loving the things that God loves, pursuing the things that God pursues. So we're to be walking in righteousness and holiness. But then he says the oil on your head. Oil in both Old Testament and New Testament is always a picture of the Holy Spirit and his anointing in our life. And he's saying this, you're to walk in the power of the Spirit of God. So you put those two together. We are called to walk in purity. We're to call to walk in the fullness of the Spirit. And here is why many believers cannot go deeper. It's right here. Let me just chat with you for a minute. When you and I are too busy pursuing the things of the world instead of the things of God, we're filling ourselves up with things that do not honor and glorify God. And we wonder why we're empty. And when we're filling up ourselves with our own passions and our own pleasures, rather than seeking to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we can never go deeper. I have these two cans right here. This is um, Tangerine LaCroix, both of them the same. Here's the difference. This one has never been opened. It is completely full of itself. And I cannot put anything into this container because it's already full of itself. This one has been emptied. I drank it last night at 10 o'clock for this illustration. <laughs> There's nothing in it, but it can be filled. And it can be filled by significant things. I think these are two pictures of believers today. And one of the reasons we can't go deeper is we're too full of ourselves and we're too full of the world. And God is saying, listen, I can't fill you until you're willing to empty yourself. And when you empty yourself, then I will bring a depth that you have never known. Somebody told me a long time ago, and this is so true, you have as much of God as you want. And you have as much of depth that you care about. Oh, I just wish I had more God. No, no, no. You have as much as you want. Are you willing to empty yourself? And are you willing to go deeper? 
So when Solomon's painting this picture, this spiritual discipline is something we don't talk about a whole lot because sometimes we get weirded out by the Spirit of God instead of embracing his power and his purity for my life. And let me just say this. There are things that God calls an abomination that we're living in a culture today that we're so afraid to call what God calls it. So we embrace it. And we fill ourselves up with the things that God detests. Number five, I like this one. How do we go deeper? By throwing yourself fully into your commitments. Now, this is something you don't hear much when people talk about how do I develop spiritual depth in my life? Well, throw yourself fully into your commitments. And he lays out two specific commitments here. Look at verse nine. Love verse nine. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Starts off pretty positive. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the vain days of your life. He's given you under sun. Why? Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, for some of us, this is a very difficult verse. Some of you have gone through the brokenness of marriage. You're healing through that. And God has given you grace and forgiveness to walk and to live a life of fullness in him. You're set free from that. But here's what he says, that we're to enjoy life with the wife of your Lord. But here's something just really interesting. Two times he says this. That's your portion and is your toil at which you toil under the sun. Isn't it interesting that he puts toil in marriage? He puts a warning here. Now, he doesn't do it with the other ones. He doesn't say, now, listen, if you trust in my sovereignty, you be careful now. Sometimes I'm going to do things that you don't agree with. He doesn't say that, listen, as you invite people over to have a wonderful dinner, they're going to be dishes and your guests are going to be dirty and messy. They're going to stain your carpet. He doesn't give any more warnings except for here. Why does he give a warning for marriage? Because he says, she's got work to do. He's got work to do. And marriage is work. Marriage is difficult. Marriage requires toil. For all of you who are married, if you agree with this, say amen. amen. Now, we're not judging anybody. Don't look at each other and say, I can't believe you said that. <laughs> the reason I said that, there's some of you here who are engaged and you're thinking, mm -mm, not us. Uh -uh. Honey, you are never any work. Come see me three months after you're married. And what he's saying is this, is that we are to enjoy one another. Now, here's a, here's a big thing that I've learned. I've been married for 37 years to a beautiful, my beautiful wife, Chris, who is an incredibly disciplined person, more spiritually deep than I am, thinks constantly of deep things. But we've been married 37 years. And you want to know what I found out? Marriage is work. Marriage is work. Every single day, I have to make a choice to die to myself. Every single day, I have to make a choice to love her in a way that she needs to be loved. Every single day, I have to trust her, especially on Sundays when she picks out my clothes to wear. Now, I did pick this out in honor of turkey season, my camouflage, okay. But here's the thing. I could probably count on one hand, and she would agree with this, the number of fights that we've actually had in our marriage but I don't have enough body parts to count the thoughts I've had during those moments. <laughs> and it means this, that there is work that has to be done. Why? Because she, he is your portion in life. Now, let me just be honest. It's hard to enjoy the wife or the husband who's been given to you as a portion when you're involved in pornography. Because you're living a life that's a fantasy that is not your own reality and you're trying to live with someone in a place where you are not. Pornography destroys intimacy in marriage. You cannot enjoy the spouse, your husband or your wife as your portion if you're flirting with someone else 
and your emotions are beginning to be attached to that person. You cannot enjoy your wife or your husband as a portion when all of your energy and time is going to the kids and not to one another. You cannot enjoy your wife or your, spouse, your husband as your portion if your mistress is your work and your job and not your spouse. I can go on and on. And the thing that we have to do is understand this, that life is tough, marriage is tough, it is a commitment every single day that I'm going to die to myself. Chris and I have had to make sacrifices. And as iron sharpens iron, we love that saying, but when you sharpen iron against iron, there are sparks. And there can be conflict. And there can be difficulties. And there can be challenges. When somebody says the grass is greener on the other side, it's only because it's over a septic tank. <laughs> but let me remind you, let me ask you this. Do you remember when your wife or your husband was that lush, green, spectacular-looking grass? Do you remember that? What happened? You happened. <laughs> both of you happened. Here's what I mean. You both changed. You've changed in your thinking. You've changed in some behaviors. You've changed in your body shape. You've changed in the color of your hair. But here's the thing, if you don't change together, you will change apart. And the goal is this, what he's saying. Listen, you wanna go deep. Go deep in your commitments to one another in marriage. Go deep and learn. Chris and I love to play games together. We play cards, we play. I didn't matter what game it is. I don't care what game it is, I lose. She always wins. <laughs> But the thing is this, we enjoy it. And I learned something different about her. And she learned something different about me. We're growing old together. Last night we were sitting on the couch and I said, babe, I'll be 64 this year. That's six years from 70. <laughs> Turning 70 is what happens to other people, not me. <laughs> and once I asked her, will you love me when I'm old and ugly? She said, I sure do. And so, <laughs> that, but... We grow together and we grow. And listen, for some of you, this is hard because you're struggling right now of either being alone because of a marriage that didn't work or stepping into a new territory of being alone. But Jesus is enough. He's enough. And then here's the second part of a commitment in verse 10. I'm gonna have to hurry. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there's no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. I love this. He just begins to say, listen, whatever commitment you have, be fully into it. Your work, work as unto the Lord. Your education, learn as unto the glory of Christ. Do everything you do with the fullness of invigoration. Don't wait until you're retired to have fun. Don't wait until a certain time in your life to do this. Enjoy every moment now and fulfill your commitments. So you want to go deeper? Trust the sovereignty of God. You want to go deeper? Embrace hope. You want to go deeper? Enjoy rich fellowship, walk in purity and power of the Holy Spirit. Fully throw yourself into your commitments. And now lastly, Living realistically, living realistically. In verses 11 through 17, he tells us about this realistic living. And that means this, we've got to live life, not with just rose-colored glasses, but we need to understand that life isn't fair. Isn't that true? Life is not fair. Not everybody gets a participation trophy, except for in our culture. But life isn't fair like that. He begins in verse 11. He says, and again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. Now, if you look at the Hebrew, 
Hebrew always begins with a negative word first. There are five negatives. If you read the, ne- the Hebrew, it would read like this. It'd say, not to the swift, the race. Not to the strong, the battle. Not to the wise, the bread. Not to the intelligence, the riches. Not to the knowledgeable, favor. And he's saying, you need to be realistic. And then here's why in verse 12. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Basically, he's saying this. You could do everything right. You could prepare everything way you can, but it might not work to your benefit. And he's saying because of time and chance. He's not saying that he believes in yin yang or he believes in karma or he believes in luck. It's going back to the sovereignty of God again. And he's saying this, that there are times that that you may plan everything well, but then there's an evil day. Your company can collapse in a moment. A health issue can come up in a moment. A person can die in an instant and you don't know where. And here's his point. And it's a warning. Human ability cannot guarantee genuine success. Human ability doesn't guarantee your success. Now, in our culture, it's the harder you work, the more you learn, the more networks you build, the more LinkedIn accounts that you have, the more things that you can do to better and improve yourself or measures of your success. But that's not true. Because the thing that we don't need to buy into is the philosophy of the world that says the better you get, the better your life is going to be because there's no promise in that. But here it is. For the child of God, the issue is not success. Listen carefully. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. The most significant thing that can happen for the child of God is to walk faithfully before the Lord, to walk obediently before him, and you trust him with your future. Because the truth is this, God many times does things in a way that you and I don't expect. You read the walls of Jericho? Joshua? Here's he going throughout the land, taking over everything, winning every single battle. He comes to Jericho and God says, I got a different plan. You're not gonna send your warriors out. I want you to send a band out. And the band's going to go out first and they're going to circle one time each day for six days. And then on the last day, the band's going to go and circle seven times and the wall's going to fall down. And Joshua must have been saying, God, that's not how battle works. Let me help you. No, no, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to get killed, but fine. Do it your way. I'm not in the band. (laughs) Send the boys out, come back, tell me how it went. What did God do? That's how he always works. And a lot of times we think that through our human ingenuity, we're going to be able to accomplish things that only God can accomplish. It's a warning. Then he goes on, he says this. He tells a parable. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun and it seemed great to me. He loves this example. There was a little city with a few men in it. That means there were very few warriors in this little town. And a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against us. Now, siege work is when they shut the city off from everything. No one can come in with supplies. No one can go out. In other words, they starved the city to death. He goes on. But there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet or better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. What's he saying? Let me just give you three points. I'm not even going to spend much time on these. Here's what he's basically saying. Strength is more impressive, but it's less effective than wisdom. We love strength. We love people of strength, don't we? We vote for people of strength, but a lot of times it's the wisdom that's way deeper than the strength. Wise counsel is never popular. Try to use wise counsel today in this insane world that we're living in, and you will be canceled and shut down. How about this one? Human rulers will always outshout counselors. That's true. The one with the loudest voice and the strongest narrative controls arguments. 
and I will just shout louder than you and shut you down so wisdom cannot have its say. Basically, it's this, and here's a learning. Here's a lesson. There may be positions that are well-approved in culture but are wrong. And there may be wisdom that is whispered by some of the most obscure people and are deep and are right. The point is this. Don't let the voices that are the loudest drown out wisdom. And he's saying this to us. We're living in a world where reality says wisdom often doesn't win, but keep sharing it. Keep sharing it. Now, these are the six things. You want to go deeper? Trust God's sovereignty. You want to go deeper? Embrace hope. You want to go deeper? Intimacy with good friends around a good meal. You want to go deeper? Pursue purity and the fullness of the Spirit of God in your life. You want to go deeper? Throw yourself fully to the commitments that you have made. You want to go deeper? Live realistically. Life is not fair, but wisdom wins out. William Wilberforce was a great man. He, he, he was in the parliament in the UK. And for 50 years, William Wilberforce committed himself to one thing, the abolition of slavery in the UK. He was ridiculed. He was thrown in jail many times, but he stayed the course. And after 50 years, two weeks after his death, the abolition of slavery took place in the UK. And then it began to spread through the world. One man with God is never a minority. One woman with God is never a minority. If this message is so simple, why is it that we have such a hard time with it? If this message is so simple, why do we blame God instead of trusting him? If this message is so simple, why are our marriages not healed and restored? If this, this message is so simple, why are we not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, embracing life with the fullness of hope that is eternal? Why? Verse 18 again. Here's what he says. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys them all. One sinner. One leader of the family refuses to trust the sovereignty of God and will take acts in their own hands and bring that family to destruction. One man refuses to give up his pornography and destroys generations to come. One woman refuses to forgive and builds resentment and anger for generation after generation. One believer refuses to walk in intimacy with others and gossips and creates disunity in the body and divides a whole congregation. One individual refuses to yield to the Holy Spirit's direction in their life. We could go on and on. And usually when I keep seeing this word, one sinner, I see me. You see, we like to look at other people, huh? Oh, but, but, but if she would, oh, if he would have said, oh, but if, if my kids would, no. No, one. And the reason we can't go deeper is usually a minority. So here's the point today. You want to go deeper with God? It begins with you, not anybody else. 
It begins with your commitment to Christ. It begins with your commitment to his word. It begins with your commitment to obedience. I don't know where you are, but you know where you are. And God knows where you are. And God is challenging us right now. Wow, I'm four minutes over. I didn't know I'd be that. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, some of you are thinking, I got to get to brunch, man. I got to get to brunch. Well, the Methodists have already beat you there, so don't worry about it, okay? The Catholics have already had a meal in their service. The Presbyterians are predestined to be there before you. The Pentecostals, they won't be there till 2.30, so you got plenty, plenty of time. But right where you are right now, right now, serious, right now, what is God saying to you? Are you satisfied with where you are? Do you have all of God that you want? Do you have as much depth as you want? Or do you want more? And God is calling you as believers to go deeper. If you're here this morning, you're not a believer. I just want to say to you that the answer to your issues of life is Jesus. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be tough. But it will be well worth it because there's eternity with him in the future. If you don't care about Christ, I would just say this. Live everything you can for comfort right now because it won't be long before you're dead. But if you care about eternity, then surrender now because it won't be long before you're dead. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak to our hearts in this message. May your sweet spirit convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted in. And Father, there are broken pieces of all of our lives that we have to pick up. And Father, in the midst of this broken mess, we give this to you. And Father, we trust you. We trust you. That somehow in the mystery of your sovereignty and your providence and your plan, you will work all these things out. so that we will experience you in a way we never have. And Father, we just yield to you right now. Right now. Thank you, Father, for your love and your patience. May we honor you in such a way that the only praise we hope to hear one day is well done, well done, faithful servant. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.